Welcome to Vital Talks Listen, the podcast accompaniment to Vital Strategies speaker series on public health. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President for Policy, Advocacy, and Communication. You're listening to a bonus episode covering the launch of a new resource that demystifies billions of dollars across multiple opioid settlements in the United States with state-by-state data and fact sheets. Also, before we begin, I want to note that if you're in the New York City area and interested in knowing about future in-person events that include both topical roundtable discussions with leading experts like you'll hear today and light social and networking hour at our offices, or if you just want to know about future episodes, please sign up to stay informed at vitalstrategies.org slash vital news. Let's give today's interview with our two experts a listen. My name is Christine Minhee. I'm the founder of OpioidSettlementTracker.com. And I am Kate Bolton. I am a senior legal technical advisor with the Vital Strategies Overdose Prevention Program. Christine and Kate, it's such a pleasure to have you on Vital Talks, and I'm really excited to get into the details about this new resource we've launched together about opioid settlements. And I thought that before we talk about the resource, we could just set the stage a bit about why these are important. We know that the overdose crisis is spinning out of control with more than 107,000 deaths in the last year due largely to fentanyl and illicit drug supply and other reasons, and that for decades, the U.S. has had this punitive approach, like trying to lock up or jail drug users and sort of force people into not using drugs, Um, but that we have a public health approach that has been under-resourced and under-supported called harm reduction, which focuses on practical ways to have people use drugs more safely and are less likely to overdose, things like needle exchanges and fentanyl test strips. And that's the context these opioid settlements are happening in. Can you also, just for those who may not know, share a little bit about what are these opioid settlements? Why are they happening? Why are they happening now? And are they significant? Are they big? Christine, maybe you can start us off with a little background on these opioid settlements, what they are, where they're happening, and and Kate, you could follow up with some of the opportunities you see. Sure. Thank you, Steve. Um, So when we hear the term opioid settlements used, either amongst our colleagues or if we read about in the news, it's typically referring to a very specific type, um, a settlement reached between a state or local um, government with a pharmaceutical manufacturer, distributor, or retailer. We are squarely in what folks are calling the third wave of the opioid litigation right now. Some folks might be surprised to learn that the billions of dollars on the table aren't going to individual plaintiffs themselves, but are actually going to state and local governments specifically for the purpose of abating future opioid crises. There are few opportunities for individuals to receive monies directly in all of this. So it's especially incumbent upon states and localities to use these monies well for the sole fact that they were won on the backs of hundreds of thousands of people dying. Um, We are in the thick of a preventable overdose crisis. And these settlements represent a massive infusion of cash that can be used to move the needle on public health. States and localities have the opportunity potentially to use these monies differently than they've used monies from other sources of funding in the past. And that choice is uh, genuinely up to them. 
Yeah, I agree. I think there's a great deal of flexibility here uh, that we don't necessarily see in other uh, common sources of funding to address uh, substance use disorder and the overdose crisis, like uh, federal uh, SOR block grants. And so, you know, there's a real opportunity to embrace investments in harm reduction and move away from a a sort of punitive or carceral approach. You know, uh, harm reduction is named in Exhibit E of the National Settlements as uh, an approved use of these funds. And I think because of the timing of the settlements, they really uh, invite a consideration of sort of the long game because funds will be flowing for years. It's not uh, one giant disbursement on the front end. And so there's a real opportunity to strategize uh, in a more, you know, long-term or visionary way about how we really turn the tide on the crisis. That's exciting to hear. And Christine, maybe you could start by sharing a little bit about what people will see when they look at these resources. What's the information within this resource? And then how does that unpack the settlements in ways that will empower what you're saying, which is that that we could use these funds potentially differently and in visionary ways towards promoting harm reduction? For sure. Um, I might answer that question in a somewhat roundabout way. So uh, I launched my settlement tracking website in 2019 as a fellow, and then I was you know, partnering with the various public health organizations, exploring how settlement funds could potentially be used. Um, when I transitioned my fellowship into a consulting gig, um, I then, you know, Rend came from consulting retainers and guest speaker honorary. And every time I would speak about opioid settlements, regardless of the context, when it came to the Q&A section, all roads led to questions that were incredibly state specific. Like, OK, I get what you're saying about this trend you're seeing nationally or that there are certain uses of funds that are and are not allowed. I get that. But in my state, what are the spending rules? What are the actual decision making processes? And if I'm doing a state specific presentation, then, of course, I'm able to answer those questions. But more often than not, in these Q&A sessions, I would I would have to answer with it with an it depends, you know, check out your state's memorandum of understanding or read its plans, which, you know, often take the form of pieces of legislation and contracts and documents that aren't super interesting to read, frankly. So these community guides that we created are the only known encyclopedia, uh, encyclopedic um, explanation and description of what is actually contained in these states' plans. All of the legalese and all of the terms and conditions, so to speak, that are built into states' MOUs and the statutory trust and allocation statutes, we've read through all of those documents and we've extracted the rules that were the most pertinent for community advocates to know. Um, so when folks check out these guides, they can see everything to do with their state's plan, um, setting aside what is required nationally and across the board in a common denominator sense. How is this specific state approaching its settlement spend? How does it specifically define approved uses? Where does the money sit? And not only that, who is the actual decision maker? I get that there is an advisory council involved somewhere. What does the advisory council actually control? These guides answer all of those questions. Fantastic. And Kate, maybe you could share, can you paint a picture of this resource in action? What are you hoping is going to happen when people get their hands on this information? 
Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I want these resources to, you know, empower people on the ground to demand participation in the process, uh, demand the opportunity to provide feedback on how funding is used, and to demand transparency so that we can really understand the impacts that these settlement funds are having. And, you know, as Christine said, we've we've really uh, broken down and demystified otherwise kind of technical, often inaccessible uh, information and legal instruments. So I see it as, you know, the resources democratizing otherwise arcane information in a way that equalizes the playing field, right? There is a real saturation of content uh, directed at government players. You know, how can they spend the money wisely? But what about everyone else, right? What about the the people that the funds are intended to uh, support? So that's what I hope to see. And, you know, I can't wait to really hear um, those examples from, you know, the states where we work and beyond about how uh, the guides are really empowering people in this way. I love that too. We talk a lot about this podcast about how public health needs to bridge into demystifying the technical aspects so that we can bring more voices to the decision-making table. And that's kind of what this you're saying suggested this resource may do because you've done the hard work of combing through all of these laws and settlements and, and figuring out what the sort of more plain way of understanding, you know, the accountability mechanisms and what's on the table. I'm wondering, Christine, is there anything that surprised you that you found a particular state or across the states that you found, uh, yeah, was surprising to you that you didn't know before you started this process? You know, uh, the short way to answer that, that there are a million more ways that a state can excel with its plan and, and there are a million more ways where a state can disappoint me with this plan than I could have ever anticipated. I think discussions about spend these days, you know, when the normative question is asked, like, are these settlement funds going to be spent well? Was this a good use of funds or was this a bad use of funds? Um, though those questions go to, you know, the, the nature of spend, you know, this actual substance that the money is going to, like what particular intervention. Um, but often, uh, versus substance, like the procedure of it all isn't normally discussed, like how the money is spent, like regardless of what it's spent on, is it spent transparently? Who are the decision makers? Um, Are folks invited to the table as these decisions are made? There are so many ways that a state can do this well. And there are so many, and this being, um, you know, quote unquote, good opioid settlement spend. And there are so many ways a state can spend its monies poorly. For instance, Uh, a topic that most states' plans do not address, but I'm heartened to see when it is addressed, the issue of supplantation. So a state can absolutely satisfy its terms under the national settlement agreements and live up to all the highfalutin language of its MOU or its statutory trust, whatever. It can do everything right on paper. But if these settlement dollars are being used merely to supplant monies that ought to have been spent on a particular function or cause to begin with, then are we really expanding public health infrastructure? Or are we just using these settlement funds essentially as slush to keep the status quo going? 
So I, I think it was fascinating to learn how states decided to articulate their uh, spending goals, how specifically they decided to articulate them, where they decided to pull back and be a little bit more vague. All of that, totally fascinating. Yeah, I think... Um... There's just, as Christine describes, a million and one ways uh, in which states can um, move towards a response to overdose that we want to see. You know, states really naming and uplifting harm reduction in terms of how they define opioid remediation and authorized uses of funds. And then you have the states that are, you know, sending 20% of funds directly to their sheriffs. And so, you know, um, you can see even at a very high level, these differences playing out, but then over the long term as well, understanding at a granular level how money was spent and the impact it had, whether it's just been supplanting, you know, investments that were already being made, um, all, you know, really um, distinguish states from one another. And thus, you know, there is this need for a state-specific explanation um, that people can use to understand the context where they are. Yeah, that's great. I mean, there's nothing more political than money, right? Than money and where money is spent. That's the ultimately, you know, where does society, regardless of legislation or, uh, or intent, you know, where are the resources going and who's getting them um, and how are they being used to solve the problem? Would you like to share any final thoughts or takeaway thoughts? I'd like to ask both of you, but Christine, maybe I'll start with you. These resources can be used in kind of every context to do with opioid settlements. You can be a community advocate and a grassroots organizer and look at this and find tremendous value, especially from the engaging in the process section, the decision-making process too, to be familiar with those rules and to go into a meeting with the state legislator and be able to go, you know, head-to-head on details of a state's plan. That's tremendous. But also, I mean, these guides can be used for folks in states regardless of their function, um, in states that aren't really in the news all the time for settlement happenings. There are states AGs that are very good about marketing their materials and communicating the details of the state's approach. And then there are other state government offices that are just completely mum, and they don't uh, uh, circulate the information that even local governments, the participating subdivisions need, let alone the advocates, right? So these guides are designed to inform every context, and that's that's expressed kind of technically and organizationally through the various headings. Um, but also in the spirit of this as well, we really wanted these guides to plug information gaps and you know, raise all ships and achieve information parity across the board on an issue that is incredibly vital and important <laughs> to our working today. Wonderful. Kate, any final thoughts from you? Yeah, I would just uh, recall something Christine said early on as we were conceptualizing this project. But, you know, the guides are really uh, a mile wide and a mile deep, meaning they are comprehensive in their scope. And you can find everything you need to know um, from these technical documents, state law, executive orders, to really um, leverage that information um, for one's advocacy. And I guess I would also use just kind of an irritating platitude, which is that 
it's a marathon and not a sprint. And I say that because I want to stress that there is room to create and maintain spaces for accountability and spaces for course correction. And so that's what the guides are intended to enable and facilitate so that we see, you know, investments that are benefiting um, people disproportionately harmed by the drug war and the overdose crisis. And so um, I'm excited to see what the future holds for the resources. Christine Minhe and Kate Bolton, I want to congratulate you both on the publication of this incredible resource and and thank you for appearing on Vital Talks. And if you're an audience member listening today and are interested in finding these, please go to opioidsettlementtracker.com or vitalstrategies.org and you can find your state-specific resource uh, about these opioid settlement trackers. Thanks again to the both of you. We have more interesting topics and guests coming up on the Vital Talks podcast. And if you're interested in how global health can become more effective or you've enjoyed today's bonus episode, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast. Also, visit us at vitalstrategies.org. Subscribe to our e-newsletter where you can sign up for news, resources, and insights tailored to your interests like overdose prevention, NCD prevention, environmental health, and much more. If you have any feedback or thoughts, please feel free to drop us a line at vitaltalks at vitalstrategies.org. This is Steve Hamill signing off for the Vital Talks podcast.